Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1 through 10, and the message is entitled, Life in View of Death. Death is something that man is very aware of and is constantly attempting to delay or escape altogether. Be it through plastic surgery or reversing some aging process, there's always something new on the internet, this new avocado they have found, or this new apricot stuff you can smack her all over your face or whatever. Um, and regardless of what you do on the outside, you're going to die right on time. You are mortal. Some people can't handle aging. Some people don't age gracefully. Take care of your body. Eat a little better. But it's a tent. The thing is in life that if you don't realize that, that the older you get and the more you strive to look young, the more ridiculous you look. You ever see some of these women that have so much plastic surgery? My Lord, you think they're going to blow up? They're going to be the best-looking corpse up in Rolls Hills. It's going to take thousands of years for their body to decompose. But it's not going to help them at all. Now you have some kind of accident, some disfigurement, and something happens to you. They have to do some plastic surgery. I have no problem with that. But for vanity, why? But this is the way of the world. This is man's vanity all the time. This is one of the main themes that um, the preacher here in Ecclesiastes is constantly bringing out throughout the book. It is the very backdrop theme of the book. Solomon is very aware that this one thing happens to all of mankind, the non-believer as well as believers. Chapter 2, verse 16, 3-2, 3-19, 7-1, one, just to mention a few. Too many people understand Solomon to be contradicting himself as he makes the observations that even man is like the beast in that death is the end of both. But it is only a statement of fact, not that there isn't a difference between them. And he speaks about that in Ecclesiastes 3.21. So it's just a sheer observation. But as we'll see, and if you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is not walking with God. He threw away the majority of his life. He walked in disobedience, compromise. He married pagan women. He gave himself to every pleasure, everything under the sun. Key phrase is vanity, vanity, vexation of spirit under the sun. I can only get that way and it just slips through your finger. Oh, it's not. No, oh, I thought it'd be better. I thought it'd be more. I thought it would fulfill me. I thought it would be the epitome of all my life. Hmm. Therefore, the counsel of Solomon throughout the book is that man should live and enjoy the fruit of his labor here and now. As part of God's blessing, be it believer or non believer, but he at no time is saying that man should live for himself or live an indulgent life. That's not what he's saying. Remember that Solomon is giving to us the natural observations and conclusions of man living apart from God. As he set his heart to see 
and search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. That's the key phrase. In order to see if, in fact, all the things that man says bring satisfaction are true or not. That is his opening statement in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Solomon points out the seeming contradictions, inconsistencies, and uncertainties in life that puzzle the man who lives apart from God as he is moving towards the wisdom of living a life dependent on God. So as you begin the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is, 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 is searching. He's giving himself. He's not really walking with God. And as he progresses in the book, you see him coming back to God towards the end. It's a very clear picture. But what a waste of life. Solomon is already old. And having wasted his life, has recognized that God alone brings true satisfaction in life. And he is leading up to the very conclusion that life in view of death should be lived in the fear of God and keep his commandments due to the fact that he will bring every work into judgment. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Every work. Solomon gives to us here in chapter 9, verse 1 through 10, three important truths regarding life and death. Let me read here, chapter 9, 1 through 10. For I considered all this in my heart, so that I could declare it to all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hands of God. People know neither love nor hate by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good, the clean, the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears no oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That one thing happens to all, truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living knows that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hate or hatred, and their envy have now perished. Moreover, will they have a share in anything? Uh, nevermore. Nevermore, I'm sorry. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with merry heart. For God has already accepted your work let your garments always be white and let your hand or your head um, lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife of whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your position in life. And in the labor which you perform under the sun, 
whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Encouraging words, huh? Three important things regarding life and death that Solomon gives to us here. First, the proclamation about life, the life of the righteous in verse 1. Secondly, we have the observations of life and death, verse 2, down to 6. And then we have the exhortation for life in view of death in verse 7 through 10. The proclamation about life, the life of the righteous comes first in verse 1. Notice Solomon was convinced in his heart that man cannot find out the ways of uh, the ways God works. This is a repeated theme throughout the book. Uh, chapter 3, verse 11, 14 through 15. Chapter 7, 13 through 14, just to mention a few. The reference notices to the last two verses of the previous chapter here, the first verse. It's looking back. Verse 16 and 17. And 16, sleepless um, uh, nights of study will not discover the mind and ways of God. Verse 16. No matter how much we search out, in any way, we'll never find it. Unless God had revealed to us the revelation about himself, sin, redemption, all that in the Bible, we would not have any idea at all. Isaiah 55, 89 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor... Are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And yet God in his greatness does allow us to understand so much through the revelation of his word. In verse 17 of the previous chapter, labor and wisdom is not sufficient. Try as he may to discover the works of God. Uh, how do you do that when God just says, light be, and it's there? He just spoke the creation into existence. Uh, how do you even fit that in your brain? Paul the Apostle kind of summarizes it in his epitome in Romans eleven thirty three to 36. All the depths, the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, of whom be glory forever. Amen. That's at the, at the end of all the doctrinal statements, the treatise of Romans, of justification by faith. The just shall live by faith. We are justified in the work of Jesus Christ in a way that a holy God made redemption possible for sinful man and having paid a real price, having died and tasted of a real death, he did it in our place so that we could have an opportunity to come and repent and be one with God. Wow. And he never violated his holiness at all. Amazing. Notice the place where Solomon settled this was in his heart. He says, for I consider all this in my heart. The place of the intellect, the emotions, and the will. There is the battle that goes on. 
As a fallen person, not born again, your life is directed by your emotions, ruled by emotions so often, or your own intellect, your own understanding. Ladies, you are ruled more by emotions than intellect. Doesn't mean you're inferior, it means you're wired differently. You have greater highs, greater lows. Men are more in the middle. And that's why men manipulate women. Because they work their emotions. And so men will pretend to give love to get physical sex. And women get sex to get love. In this fallen state, that's how it works. Because we're broken, we're corrupted. And therefore, sin entering into the formula just destroys everything. Once we're born again, then we're right side up. Our spirit is uppermost. No longer is our life ruled by the demands of our body, our sinful nature. We don't make decisions by our emotions, but by the word of God. So there's a protection. There's a strength. There's a stability. The word considered means to put or deposit. The heart of man is the very essence of the whole person. The inner man versus the outer man. The real man versus the false man. The word appears 902 times in the Old Testament, 157 in the New Testament, 36 times in Ecclesiastes out of those 902 in the Old Testament. The heart, the heart, the heart. That is the heart of the problem in fallen man. Sometimes people go to a heart specialist and, they, and, and he says, you know what you have is a heart murmur. <laughs> That's exactly the problem with man. His heart is evil and it just murmurs. The word murmur is a word, uh, anomatopoeic is called when a word sounds like it's written, murmur. Murmur means you can't distinguish what they're saying. You know, you're a parent. You know what I'm talking about. You tell your kid, go clean up your room. What? You know, they don't want you to understand what they're saying. But you know they're saying something, right? What's the problem? The heart. Always the heart. Notice Solomon was convinced in his heart that the righteous and the wise, in verse 1 there, as well as their works, were in the hand of God. Solomon is very aware of God and who he is throughout the book. He declares that he saw the work of God, chapter 8, verse 17. He declared God's control over the life of the righteous and the wise in chapter 9, verse 1. He mentions God 42 times in the book. He will finish the book by pointing man to God in chapter 12, verse 1. And 13. That's always the solution to all things. That's always the wisest counsel to point people to God. Solomon is confident that the believer is under divine direction. The works are the work of God. Notice the control over them is indicated by the phrase in the hand of God. The assurance being about 
great hope and comfort. Think of your life before Christ. And you might have been a real moral person, real ethical person. And you were very considerate and you were an example of a, of a civil civilian. But without the Lord, there really is no guarantee of eternity. God is not in control of your life. You had control of your life. And the problem with doing good works or, 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 or worse yet, not that being moral or ethical is wrong, but the problem when you are like that is that you feel, what do I have to repent from? Because you look yourself here and you look at the majority of society down here. And so what happens? What happens is self-righteousness. <clears throat> what Jesus spoke against in the Sermon on the Mount. Because we compare ourselves among ourselves we end up not being wise. When the fact is that all of humanity deserves hell. Moral, immoral, ethical, unethical. Certainly being moral and ethical is better for society. No one's arguing that. But the fact that all fall short of the glory of God is the point. No one can come before God and say, you can let me in based on who I am and what I've done. <laughs> Not one person. Solomon noticed, was convinced in his heart that people cannot judge the love or hate of God by the events in life. At the end of verse 1 there, the phrase, by anything said before them, means whatever they have experienced in life. In life, bad things do happen to righteous people, yet it does not mean that God hates them. God allowed Job to suffer the loss of all things as well as his health. Yet God loved Job and boasted to Satan that he was a servant, none like him, blameless, upright, fearing God, shunning evil, Job 1.8. The friends of Job were convinced that Job was wicked and God was punishing him. And that's why he was suffering. Physicians of no value. Miserable comforters. We still have this relatives around at times. The positive confession people of the Christianity of today and the movement today within the church say if you're sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. Now, it could be true, but not categorically. And so it's a, con a damning and condemning doctrine because they're not going to say it's their lack of faith because they have all faith, so they're praying for you. And if you're not healed, it's got to be you. Right? Once again, if you've got to pick someone to be the winner, it's going to be you, right? <laughs> if they're going to find someone at fault, it's got to be them. Hmm. If you do a study of Scripture as well as 
Christianity through history, men of God that God has used tremendously, some of them have been some of the sickliest people. But they're spiritual giants. Paul the Apostle is one of them. <laughs> and yet wherever he went, he prayed and God healed them. But he had to live with that. Hmm. The Lord Jesus was sinless and he suffered at the hand of the wicked, yet God the Father loved him dearly. So we have to be careful to say, well, he's suffering because, you know, he's got secret sin. Now, it may be true, but we don't know. I don't know the heart, right? Unless there's evidence in that, I, I can't say. Certainly the friends of Job, we'll call them friends, um, they were convinced that uh, he had secret sin, right? The experience in life also is that good things happen to bad people and it does not mean that God is blessing them by his love, by approving of their evil lives. That'd be a wrong conclusion. Ecclesiastes 7.15 says, I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. You ever read Psalm 73? The psalmist says, I've cleansed my hands in innocency. The evil men, you know, their children never get sick. Their calves never die. And, you know, he just says, I'm done. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. They are like, like men, like beasts over slippery places. They'll slip at any moment into eternity. I was like a beast before you, Lord. Who do I have in heaven but you? Who do I desire upon earth besides you? Going to prayer, waiting to hear God brought him back to reality. You got to be careful to not keep your eyes too much on the world. You got to set your mind on things of God and God himself. God allows the wicked and unbeliever to receive the benefit of their efforts and labor, even when they are dishonest. The rain falls on the just, the unjust, right? Doesn't mean God's approving. God's judgment will come. Sometimes God judges right now and sometimes he'll judge later. The world that we see is not what God intended, but rather the world that is in continual rebellion against God through the fall. This is a great problem to man who lives apart from God as well as the carnal Self-willed Christian. Ecclesiastes 8.14 says, There is a vanity which occurs on earth, that there are, just, there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said, this also is vanity. Because you're looking at it from the perspective of the earth. Not from the heavenly perspective. From the temporal, not the eternal. The believer can always and must always measure God's love for him or her by having their eyes. Are you ready? On the cross. The cross, ladies and gentlemen. When I see his arms stretched out and his hands pierced, nailed for me, I know he loves me. When I see his 
torn back. I know he loves me. When I see that he endured all that he did to the very end to say, it is finished. I know he loves me. You must never take your eyes off the cross. It's the stabilizing force continuously for every situation, every circumstance. It will rule over your emotions and make you stable. One person put it this way, quote, In his providence, God knows how much joy and sorrow, how much pleasure and pain, how much prosperity and poverty is proper for his child. He knows the correct balance of sunshine and storm. The precise mixture of darkness and light it takes to perfect a son or daughter. When you're raising your children, you expect and exact of them certain things which they are totally convinced that you just want to make their life miserable. You couldn't possibly love them to put them through some of these things. And yet, because you are the parent and you were there at one time, you have much more wisdom and insight. And you know that it will produce in them what is necessary for life. That's why you're called parents. (laughs) And they're the children. The Lord, through Paul, tells us we don't have any idea what God has for us here and now. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Second Corinthians, I'm first Corinthians two nine. That scripture is for here and now, not later. The things that he has prepared for you as a Christian from day to day, from week to week, as you move through life, he will be there, he will be directing, he will be guiding. Your heart. The Lord tells us through Paul that we are his handiwork, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus beforehand that we might walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 Whether we will walk in them is up to us. It's not guaranteed because I'm to tune my ear to God. The high priest used to anoint his right ear to Tune his ear to the voice of God, his right thumb to do the work of God, and his right big toe to walk in the ways of God. Remember, God called Samuel. Samuel, Samuel, he thought Eli was calling him. He kept going back and forth. Finally, he said, listen, next time you hear the voice, say, speak, Lord, your servant here. Samuel was young. He hadn't tuned his ear to the voice of God. But once he tuned his ear, he became God's prophet. The Lord promises us that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose in Romans 8, 28. As we are walking with him, as we are growing with him, as we're looking to him, as he stretches us, as he matures us, as we follow the voice of the shepherd. The Lord through Peter tells us that we are 
to commit ourselves to God in our sufferings to Him as a faithful creator. That's a strange verse, isn't it? Only because we as a church in America have never suffered. It is the will of God at times and He allows it and permits it. You find that in 1 Peter 4.19. In fact, he told Peter, you, when you were young, you did as you will, and you went where you wanted to. When you're old, you're going to be taken where you don't want to go. And he spoke about his manner of death. Tradition says Peter was crucified upside down by his own Petition because he didn't think himself worthy to be crucified upright like his Lord. Amazing. The proclamation about the life of the righteous is that they are in God's hands. How are we doing? When we talk about this, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about being a Christian. We're talking about walking with Him from day to day, keeping your account short, staying in the Word of God, praying being the church, being involved, reaching out to the lost, praying for the sick, being the body of Christ, not allowing the world to crowd him out. It seems that um, we think that we're gracious when God gets the crumbs of our life. Well, right now I'm young and right now I'm doing this and that. Great. That's when you should live for God. Not just when you're old and decrepit. <laughs> Notice, secondly, comes the observations of life and death, verse 2 through 6. In verse 2, life does not seem to be fair due to the fact that good and bad things happen to all people. All things come alike to all, he says there. To the righteous and the wicked, the good, the clean, the unclean, the one who sacrifices, the one who does not, the good and the sinner. To the one who takes an oath and the one who, who um, fears no oath. So from the perspective of, of Solomon, as he's trying to figure this out on his own human abilities, not walking with God, things don't make that much sense. Do you realize he had a thousand women? 300 wives, 700 concubines. And he said he did not find one that was faithful. You would think that through all that variety, through all that spice of life, that he would be an expert on women. No, he was more tainted. The deception of the enemy is experience all you can because then you'll really be able to know what's best. No, you won't. You're corrupted by them. You weigh your spirit down. You destroy it. Satan's a liar. He always puts a magnifying glass before your sin to magnify your benefit and he minimizes the consequences. Just the reverse. He's a liar. Verse 3 and 4, life seems evil in that the end is the same for all, the righteous and the wicked. They both die. The conclusion of the man who lives apart from God is that this is evil. Both die, verse 3. The nature of man is a heart full of evil, he says also in verse 3. 
confirming what God says in Genesis 6, 5. It's evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9. Jesus says that in Matthew 15. The basic problem in man understanding the world as it is has to do with the fact that he has fallen, yet he believes himself to be good. We are in the heyday, the height of man's enamoration with himself. Go online and read the Humanist Manifesto. We have got it all. We don't need God anymore. We, science is going to fix everything. Yeah. And they corrupt the science that is true science into hypotheses and lies to manipulate the population of the world. Simple lie. Overpopulation from the 60s on. From the 60s on that we were overpopulated. Really? Just three years ago, we just went over population to where it needs one more state. Otherwise, you can put the entire world in Texas with a three-bedroom house. Have you ever flown them in a plane? You ever notice all the empty space? People are like rats. They congregate together in cities. With the population decrease that's going on, every nation in the world is under regaining Stable population. It will not regain it in the next 30, 40 years. The only nation that is above is the United States. Why? Because they want to decrease population to control people. It's real simple. That's why they go for abortion. You kill the young. That's why they're going for euthanasia. You kill the old. And then they've got a little added help with suicides. And that's why they don't object to homosexuality because they can't reproduce. Every one of those angles is population control, ladies and gentlemen. And the propaganda is in the universities. And when they graduate, they take their places in the world. Wow. Master strategists. <laughs> Amazing to me. Amazing. The goodness of man. He's good for nothing. Finish the sentence. Except lies and wickedness. The inability to deal with the seeming unfairness and inequities can frustrate man and bring out the madness in his heart while he lives. Verse 3 says, some will become bitter towards God due to the inconsistencies and inequities they see. Others will conclude that there is no benefit in doing good and therefore they turn to a life of evil too. What is it, what's, what's the use? Can't beat them, let's join them, right? Still others declare themselves atheists. Stating if there was a God, why does he allow these evils and inequities and all these blasphemies and evil things to go on? We've all heard it. They're repeated all the time. Notice he says it 
towards the end of three, the end, regardless of one's view of God, is death. Regardless of what our view is, or your view, or anybody else. Man has lived many years at times. Uh, Methuselah lived 969 years, but he ultimately did die. Man records in Genesis, as God's Spirit came upon Moses, an interesting thing in chapter 5, number, the name of the person is given the number of years. And then he died, he died, he died, he died, he died. There has never been anyone since Adam that has not died. No one gets out of here alive except for the generation of the rapture. <laughs> and we will be glorified immediately as we're going up. It is appointed for man to die once than the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, The hope for man is while he is alive. Look at verse 4. The word but marks the contrast of what is before, death. The point is simple and clear. The one who is still alive has hope of coming to trust in God rather than fighting against him. As long as a person is alive, there is hope for him or her. Once they take their last breath, their eternity is sealed. There is no hope if they don't know God. The illustration is vivid. A living dog is better than a dead lion. You say, what the heck is that? The lion is stronger than a dog. Not when he's dead. A dog was an object of contempt, yet life allows it to be and to see another day. When you get to verse 5 and 6, Solomon tells that life is better than death. The living know that they will die, verse 5 says, the beginning. The living, as they travel through life, see people, friends, and relatives die. So they recognize that one day, they also will die. My mom has Alzheimer's, well, Dementia, moving to Alzheimer's. She's been for six years, and we have her in a home with six, seven people. And they care for her real good because she needs 24-7 care. And just before I, I, I was coming back to work, she had a little uh, dizzy spell and almost passed out. And we know that she's winding down. Um, but the hope, and our hope is I know so, not I hope so, is that the minute that she gives up her last breath, she's instantly present before the Lord. But I can see my mom just young and lively and alive, and here she is. Overnight. It happens to all. You're young, and then you can't imagine ever needing glasses. Are you kidding me? I used to teach out of notes this big when my one eye was good. You get old. Things wear down. They tear down. The dead have departed this world. Look at the end of the middle of verse 5 to 6. 
The dead stand in sharp contrast to the living by the word but, and the dead know nothing um, appears to be a wrong statement by Solomon here in his limited knowledge about the dead. Again, some of the things that he's saying, he says out of his own rationale. What you find in the Bible is accurate. It's reliable. But what is some of the things that are said, they're not truth about what is stated. It's an accurate statement of what he says, but living apart from God, he's using human rationale at times. And as you move through the book, he gets closer and closer to God as he comes back to him. Because the Old Testament is not the ultimate revelation of God in the Scriptures. The Scriptures are progressive. And the Old Testament does not reveal the intricate details of the resurrection. Daniel speaks about the resurrection, but there's not much detail about the dead. The New Testament reveals that the dead have knowledge in Hades, in Sheol, the grave. Luke 16, Jesus told us the rich man and Lazarus died, right? They went to Hades. They remembered. They felt the flames. It was a place of comfort, a place of torment. You don't cease to exist. You're not annihilated. The Bible doesn't teach that. Everybody will live for eternity. Where is your choice? Not God's. He gives every person opportunity to choose where they want to spend eternity. That choice is made while you're living, not after you die. Anybody who gives you hope after death is a liar and a deceiver. Get away from them. If you're going to find out about life after death, you better talk to someone who's come back from the dead. And there's only one that I know. That's Jesus Christ. The dead have no reward there in verse 5, for memory of them is forgotten. They're no longer present to receive the benefits of this world, of the living. They're soon forgotten. You pass the time. And men and women want to be remembered. How many men, they go to pristine universities and they want to give big donations so they can name a building after them. They want to be remembered. Hmm. they're soon forgotten. The dead can no longer manifest their emotions, passions through their physical bodies. Verse 6 says, their love, hatred, envy have ceased with them in this world. Their activities have ceased in this world as they knew it under the sun. Key phrase. The physical death is the separation of the soul and the spirit from the body. Your body returns to the dust. Your soul and spirit are going to be with God or separated from God. It's called the second death for those who don't know God. The ultimate end is the lake of fire or Gehenna, Revelation 20, verse 1 through 4. And Gehenna was made for no one but Satan and his angels. Matthew 25, 41 tells us. Not for man. The spirit of man lives eternally with God or separated from God. You know, a person learns more about life from difficulties 
and hardships than times of pleasure. It reveals greater value of life. Later on, he says it's better to go to the house of mourning and the house of feasting. Because when you go to the house of mourning, you have to contemplate and think, wow, one of these days, I'm going to be there. The house of feasting, you're just dancing, partying. You just, you know, you just, there's, there's nothing on your mind but you. Nothing wrong with having a good time. But there's a contrast. The injustice of someone robbing old people of their life savings by deception is so unfair and so treacherous, and yet it happens all the time, and many other injustices. Yet it only reveals the depravity of man, not the goodness of man. Dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says. They want to convince us of the goodness of man. I don't know where they're getting their evidence from. Certainly, I haven't found it. Now, we have the potential for good because we're creating the image and likeness of God, but our bent is towards evil and darkness. A vanity in our heart that can only be satisfied with Jesus Christ. The consequence of physical death entered at the fall, as you know. No one can escape it, as we said, and there is a difference between a believer and a non-believer. The minute you die as a Christian, you're instantly present before the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 8, you're never found naked, he says, twice. Immediately. The passing from this life to the next seals a person's eternity. Life is a gift of God to accept him. For this reason, Paul says that we persuade men knowing the terror of the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5, 11. Once you come to God, you realize through the Lord Jesus Christ that you were under the wrath of God. That you were headed for eternity separated from God. And by his grace, he forgave you and put you on the straight and the narrow way. And you see it and understand it clearly. Totally oblivious before Christ. The observations of life and death is to value life. Notice thirdly in verse 7 through 10, the exhortation for life is in view of death. In verse 7 and 8, man is to enjoy the blessing in life. The individual is to eat his bread and with joy and his wine with a merry heart. The ability to labor should result in being thankful. The very fact that you are strong, that you have a healthy body, a clear mind to think, to solve issues, to resolve things, to understand, to comprehend, to assimilate, to make the best choice of all that information, to be wise in wisdom. Who, who do we owe it to? The Cheerios we eat? 
to God. Believer and non-believer. He's the creator of both. The partaking of one's provisions should result in satisfaction and contentment. Notice that. A repeated theme throughout the book. The reason is that God has already accepted your works, he says. The implication being that the very ability to work is from God. Self-respect, dignity, honor. You know, there, when I was growing up, I used to work for Prana Market and there were people that come in with food stamps. And of course, they couldn't buy luxury things like candy, beer, or anything like that. But food, they could buy. And then we would give them credit if there was any change and stuff like that. Um, when I grew up, people were not entitled. People had a sense of decency and self-respect. It was embarrassing for some people, okay? And they took those stamps because it was food stamps because it was hard times and they needed it. We have come to generations now, progressively, that people are demanding for these things because they're lazy and entitled. Yet the Bible is very clear, whoever doesn't work doesn't eat. It's amazing to me. Even the Old Testament, you know, um, the poor, they left the corners of the fields unreaped so that they could go out and have some self-respect and decency and they would pick and they would work to feed themselves and not simply beg or anything else. Everybody falls in bad times sometimes and that's what we're there to help as individuals, hopefully. But when it becomes a habit and a demand and entitlement, society begins to implode. It can't survive. It's impossible. The implication being that the very provision from one's labor, God's blessings, approves it. That you enjoy them. You partake. The individual is to take part in feasting when it calls for it. Verse 8. The white garment speaks of joyous feasting. The oil on the head of celebration. God's not a killjoy. He says, hey, are you laughing? Get wipe that smile off your face. And sometimes Christianity was portrayed like that, right? The more serious you were, the more godly you thought you were. I hope you haven't lost your sense of humor, yet we're not like we were in the world. We're not to have coarse jesting. We're not to have double entendres and innuendos. We're to honor the Lord in all things. But I've had more fun being a Christian than I ever did when I was out in the world being all drunk and crazy and all that. Because it's a different perspective. One is living, the other one's dying. <laughs> but you don't know it. Look at verse 9. Man is to enjoy his wife. He's to live joyfully with the wife of his youth all the days of his vain life. <laughs> Interesting. God created man with the need of a companion in order to be complete according to God's design in Genesis. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a help me comparable to him. God created the marriage covenant for the soundness and strength of society. 
God created man and woman. God created the institution of marriage. Man did not invent it. God did it so the society could function, be sound, strong, be able to enjoy the things of life. God created marriage to raise godly children, the godly seed, as Malachi 2, 13 through 16 says. That through our example as parents, we pray for our children, we instruct our children, we correct our children, we guide our children, we reprove our children. We discipline them severely if need be before they get old and it's too late. Children are like cement. I don't know if you've ever worked mud, but when that mud truck drives up and you've got five minutes to get down the yard, now everybody pumps it, but they used to wheel it. But once it's down, you've got to grade it, tamp it, and start fresnoing and everything else because once it sets up, you might as well drop your trawls and come back and break it out tomorrow. Children are just like that. They're wet cement. And before you know it, they will harden. You must mold and shape them while they're wet. Very important. Notice he's to recognize that she was a gift given by God, given to you under the sun. He has this privilege and responsibility in life, for this is your portion in life. He is the covering of his wife. He's to celebrate and enjoy his wife, but to protect her. He only enjoys this privilege under the sun, here on the earth. Twice the phrase is repeated, the man who lives on this earth, the covenant of marriage is not for the life in eternity. It's not for heaven. It's only for here. Notice in verse 10, man is to be diligent while he lives then. He is to all things in life to the fullest extent and with the greatest effort in order to do the best job. To give us all. The statement, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might implies diligence and excellence. Whatever implies all things in life. The reason given is that this life under the sun is when he can benefit from it, not after death. We've already stated that Solomon is speaking from limited revelation regarding life after death. We also know from the New Testament that shield in the grave was the place of departed spirits. The place was divided into two compartments. In the one place you have those of belief and the other one of unbelief. In one side you have those who are in torment, the other one a place of comfort. There is no second opportunity for the ones who are in torment, separated from God. And yet, they have memory of their failures, of where they came from. I have brothers, lest they come to this place. 
If they, they have the prophets and Moses, they don't believe them, neither will they believe one who comes back from the dead. Words of Jesus. The place of faith, comfort, paradise, the bosom of Abraham. Paradise now in the third heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, 1-4. Was transferred from the bosom of Abraham up to heaven. Hudson Taylor said, If your father and mother, your sister and brother, if the very cat and dog in the house are not happier for your being a Christian, it is a question whether you really are. Men and women of old, who we have the benefit to be able to read their lives, they're never portrayed as sinless, but they are portrayed as being incredibly transformed. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Do you know the life of that man? <laughs> Wretched sinner. Wow. Are you taking advantage of the most basic things in life and enjoying them? If not, you need to do so. The scriptures give us the prescription for that. Listen to 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Are you enjoying your mate in life, husband or wife? If not, you need to go before God and have him deal with your heart. That both of you may seek the Lord for whatever the need may be. And learn how to die to self. And live for the other. You'll never be able to do it. You need the power of God's spirit and his word. You need to deny yourself. Pick up your cross. And follow him. Just as I. Ephesians 5.21 says. Submitting to one another. In the fear. The reverence of God husband and wife. Then he says, wives, submit yourself to your husband. But husband, love your wife as Christ out of the church. But mutual submission to one another in the fear of God. Are you diligent in all you do or are you irresponsible? If so, take care of it. Paul says, I beseech you by mercy of God, you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him which is reasonable service. And be not fashioned to this world system, but be transformed, metamorphosed, by the renewing of your mind to prove what is that good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. A living sacrifice. Wow. The exhortation for life in view of death is to enjoy life. Only in Christ can we do this. Many distractions. Many things in life that would want to take away our joy in the Lord. And so Solomon has given to us three important truths regarding life and death. Proclamation about 
the life of the righteous is that they are in God's hands. The observations of life and death is to value life. And the exhortation for life in view of death is to enjoy life. People have a tweaked perspective about God. They think he's just ready to whack everybody. As if he tells Gabriel, Gabriel, get the club. He died for you. He died for me. That we might live. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. And I thank you for every person here and over the internet, Lord. And we pray you continue to just deal with our hearts. Thank you for just uh, your goodness towards us, Lord. For changing our lives, transforming us, Lord, and giving us hope. It can only be found in you. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You're the only one that can make that decision. No one else can make it for you. You will decide whether you spend eternity with God or apart from Him. If you believe that Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins and paid that payment for you, died in your place, tasted death for you, and rose from the dead, and that you are a sinner, an enemy of God, under His wrath, if you agree with what God says about that, then he says, then you can call upon Jesus Christ because he died in your place for your justification to forgive you of your sins if you agree with him that he's the only way. And so once again, it's the ball's on your court. God has done everything necessary. Every person has to choose. We pray that you would... Lift your heart to the Lord and ask Him to forgive you, to be born again, that He might give to you forgiveness and eternal life. If this is your decision, right where you sit, here or over the internet, this is your prayer repentance. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Lord, baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.